Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Michael, welcome to the War Room. Thank you very much, Ryan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Okay, as I said in the green room, you like to write about this little-known historical figure called Napoleon. Um, what got you interested in him? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I, it's so long ago in a way I can't remember. I've been interested in him since I was a little boy. You know, I always wanted to be a soldier. And if you want to be a soldier, you you sort of get to know Napoleon. And uh, my grandmother was French and a great patriot. And uh, you soon instill a lot of that in me. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been fascinated uh, by him. I left it for a long time. I got more interested in the French Revolution uh, and in Italian history. When I came to do my thesis, my doctoral thesis, I came back to it. For a very different angle from I do it now. But um, it just sort of, it, and it just became a natural thing. So Napoleon is like many large figures in history. There's annually many books written about him, his life, the period of his of his era. You said you came back to it. It's a little bit different. Um, you have three recent books on him over the past handful of years. Um, why these books now, and what perspective were you trying to get? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question, Ryan. Um, when I began working on the period, it was less on Napoleon than sort of on the Napoleonic occupation in Italy, you know, the interaction of the French and Italians, what Napoleonic rule was like, very academic stuff. And then um, I think the thing that really made me want to write a life for Napoleon was when the Fondation Napoléon in Paris started producing the new edition of his correspondence, you know, which is a whole story in itself. Uh, it's completely new. It's three and a half times bigger than the original. The original correspondence was published under the editorship of his nephew, Napoleon III, so it's pretty sanitized. None of us have ever trusted it. Um, and this new thing, for the first time, and this sounds weird, given the amount we write about Napoleon, but this gave historians for the first time a chance to write something like a normal biography, you know, based on the correspondence that was not edited by him or by his family, um, you know, to really let you get close to him. And I thought it was a chance too good to miss. So I jumped in. There's a saying that, that us non-historians hear. Um, I'm curious how this pertains, if at all, to Napoleon, which is uh, history is written by the victors. Um, and, and so you talked about some of this being sanitized and stuff. Um, how much, with with the amount of stuff that's written, um, then you have obviously the the source documents that were would be around it at his time. How do you go through the process with someone who, at least in modern days, maybe is polarizing? I suspect he was polarizing in his day. How much time does it take to really unpack and try to figure out who he is versus who people thought he was? Oh, boy, um, a lifetime. Um, I wish I'd come to it sooner. And uh, I think it's going to be this is a process that's going to go on, I think, 
for as long as people are writing history about Napoleon. Um, the, the thing about him was, and, and this is honestly, the more I think about it, the more weird it is. Because um, there are two things. Because at the time, his correspondence, his official correspondence was put together by his nephew, Napoleon III. Napoleon III takes control of the historiography. You know, he and his committee decide what of, of, of all the documents that are around, because a lot of them are unofficial, of course. You know, a lot of this stuff is personal. What goes in and what doesn't. What emerges, as I said, is something we don't trust. The other thing was, of course, with the best will in the world, this was done in the mid-19th century. They didn't have the research tools we have now. You know, the, the Fondation Napoleon put together a team that scoured the archives of the world for stuff about Napoleon that had been hidden from view that, that these guys in, in 19th century France just couldn't get at. Because don't forget, probably until Hitler, um, until Elvis, Napoleon was the most famous person in the world. And a lot of people bought Napoleon's letters, not for what that was written in them, but simply for the signature. Yeah. Um, J.P. Morgan bought masses of them as an investment for the signature. And they're all in his foundation library in New York. But it took the Fondation to get to them. And a lot of them are very important. And a lot of the stuff today that goes in, I'll give you a brilliant example of what was kind of sanitized. Napoleon wrote a long, angry letter before he breaks camp on the Channel Coast, breaks off the invasion of England to attack the Austrians and the Russians in, in Central Europe in 1805. And he writes a long, angry letter to Talleyrand, who is, for, is his foreign minister, saying the coast has been left. I'm having to leave the coast undefended and it's vulnerable to attack. And you didn't tell me this. and You didn't tell me that. And whose side are you on? So I'm breaking camp. But the only thing that Talleyrand minuted in the cabinet meeting was, I am breaking camp and going to the Rhine to stop the Austrians. That's all, and that's all we knew for years. And here is this four page tirade. So that, that in a sense is why this process has to go on. This is stuff we didn't know we had. So and now it's who did Napoleon think he was? How did he view himself? That's a good one. Um, I, I, I wasn't ready for that. That's a good one. <laughs> Sorry. He, this is where, you know, the, the, it's the big propaganda machine. And it's awfully hard to know with someone like that, not just Napoleon, but anybody like that, where the public persona begins and the real person begins. And that's why the new correspondence can help you. You know, there are times when we've attributed things Napoleon has done to his massive ego, his overconfidence. And we actually read what he's writing to the people he works for, works with. This is a guy who is as nervous and worried about the situation as anybody else. You know, that you can see the public faces. We have had a big win here and we are going to follow this up. And this is what we're going to do. 
and, and I am in complete control. But the actual internal office correspondence is, look, we just about got away with that. We can't let this happen again. We've got to tighten up. We've got to do something to secure this. It's very different. Who we thought he was. I, he talks a lot about his destiny, his star. Um, I don't think you should take that literally. But he does have confidence in his own ability that can get out of hand. And one minute and the next minute is justified. You have to back yourself and have confidence in yourself. I think he sees himself as someone who knows how to take his chance. He's, but he sees himself with a sense of history. Um, and he's desperately in search of leaving a legacy. You know, but he, he knows how fragile it all is. So he's always someone living on the edge. You know, he, um, he, he's always living on the edge. I think why a lot of people don't like him, I think why a lot of academics and intellectuals don't like him, is that he enjoys success. You know, he, he really, he has a vulgar streak to him and he really enjoys his success. But he does have a lot of self-confidence, but he is all, he's also got a lot of caution. You know, and I think he sees himself, I, th I think he sees himself very much as a certain kind of Italian, a certain kind of Corsican who comes from the cities who's educated, who's cultivated, who doesn't have a lot of time for the peasantry, you know, in the back country and in the mountains. He sees himself as a man of the Enlightenment, who's as well-read as anybody could be. I think he and Jefferson were probably the two people who'd read everything you could possibly conceivably read for someone alive at the time. I think they're probably the only two men who were. Um, there were women who'd probably read more. Um, I think above all, he sees himself as someone who knows he can do the job, whatever, and so isn't afraid to take responsibility, whether it's personal or whether it's public. We, uh, this will be out by the time that you've, your episode airs, and we interviewed a um, guy who wrote a book on George Washington and he, he talked about Washington and the men in the U S um, of that era and how they were so attuned with clothing, the silk, the fabric and, but, but all areas of their life and how um, structured they were and how they valued control of emotion and they valued self-discipline um, and they, look down upon people who couldn't control their emotion and people who um, were prone to fits of rage. Would that be, how would they view Napoleon from that perspective? Interesting because it's almost dangerous to talk about the neoclassical enlightenment world and, and the, and the romanticism. So it did completely different things, but we're quite close to it here. I think when we look at these generational differences, um, Napoleon carries a lot of those values with them. And he's, it's, a lot of that's been inculcated in him from the army. You know, don't forget, he, you know, he was, um, 
a soldier from a very young age. I mean, he went to military academy when he was still a boy. He loved the army. It was the second most important thing to him in his life after his family. So self-discipline, the work ethic, deeply important to him. When it comes to human emotions, and he he's much more complex than them in his attitudes. You know, people are people, but in his in his attitudes, it's um he's a different kind of statesman in a different kind of culture. And a lot of the Napoleonic rages that get reported in people's memoirs or, or in letters are stage managed because it's a different culture. Um, very different, say, to Washington or Jefferson, where you just wouldn't do that. Napoleon can sit there and think, I'm, I'm going to blow up. I'm going to throw the toys out of the pram here and let, let this guy think that I'm going to thump him. You know, I'm not, but I'm going to let him think that. And then suddenly he can, you know, he'll calm down. He'll turn around and he'll say he's scared now, isn't he? He can show enormous sang-froid at times, um, you know, especially when it comes to something in government, when he's chairing a meeting, especially when he's at war. You know, he's, he's as cool as anything. He's got, um, he's got what I heard um, Shelby Foote say once about Grant. You know, he's got the four in the morning syndrome you can wake him up at four in the morning he won't panic um but in his personal life and his family life you see something very different that's where in his mind you know the romantic generation to feel the way he did about josephine which is passionate which is 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 genuine he has no qualms about being open about that. Um, he comes from a very warm Mediterranean family and, and he shows that. I think one of the most interesting things where you would maybe contrast that generation, not just of Americans, but you find it in Britain too and you find it in, in, in the European aristocracies. And is his, his attitude to children and his family's attitude, his brother's attitude to their children, um, and these men, you know, he he came from an, an, a, we, what we would see as a normal family. And he tries to give his son a normal life as possible. His nieces and nephews, you know, they're, they live at home. They're loved. Um, he plays with them. You see it with he and his second wife, Mary Louise, you know, who's a Habsburg princess, daughter of the Austrian emperor. She is just, she's not shocked, but she's sort of, bewildered that Napoleon will get down in his hands and his knees and he'll play toy soldiers with his son and his play toy soldiers with him. And that he'll be out teaching him to, you know, throw, catch a ball and throw a ball and stuff like that, that he's going to teach him how to ride. But we have people to do that. No, you know, he says that when he takes on Josephine's children to Eugene, you know, virtually a stepson. And Joseph Josephine's first husband, like her, was minor French nobility. You mean nobody ever taught you how to ride a horse? Nobody taught you how to shoot a pistol? Come on, kid, I'll teach you. Come on. I'll give you a riding lesson, then we'll go for an ice cream. You know, that's Napoleon, too. That's com it's a completely different social milieu 
completely different social cachet. You know, in that side of his life, it's very different. But outwardly, when it's business, you know, you conduct yourself properly. And when you don't, you apologize. So the current book, which came out in uh, August of last year, uh, Napoleon, Decline and Fall of an Empire, 1811 through 1821, why don't we set the table for what's going on in the world, the Western world, at least in 1811, and then follow up to that would be is why is that the demarcation for the, the, the decline and fall of the empire? Yeah. One of the things that one of the books I've read when I was young uh, that really left an imprint in me was Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman empire. Um, I, I always tell people I was bitten by Gibbon at an impressionable age. And Gibbon starts the history of the decline and fall with Augustus, when it looks like the Roman Empire is in its height. And I feel the same in a much more condensed period about the Napoleonic Empire. 1811, things look really good. You know, he's, he's remarried. Divorced Josephine, he's remarried Mary Louise. They've had a son, he's got an heir, you know, that's going to be born early in that year. Um, he's defeated all his major rivals. It seems like he's got a working uh, arrangement with Tsar Alexander in Russia. You know, he's brought the Austrians and the Prussians to heel. He's even winning in Spain. You know, he's got the British corralled in Portugal and Galicia. Um, he's not fighting anywhere else. You know, things are looking on the face of it very good. Even for a moment, the, the blockade of England, the continental blockade, looks like it might work because the English are going through a big financial and uh, particularly financial crisis and a crisis of an economic crisis of bad production. You know, it's looking good. But then, you know, within a few months, his world's turned upside down with the defeat in Russia. You know, the seeds of trouble are already there. Uh, a lot of it, I think, when you look at 1811, he's annexed more areas of Europe than any other time. The empire's reached its height. It looks impressive on a map. But it is, you know, to use the current term, which I find very useful for my work, imperial overstretch. You know, he's taken on to more than he can control directly. Um, some of his allies, and the Russians particularly, are getting very fed up um, with the continental system, with his economic policies, with the blockade of Britain. Things aren't as good as they look. Uh, and so, to, you know, to me, then, that is when the cracks really start to appear. Um, he himself has been very ill in 1809, um, we do know. And from what we can gather uh, shortly after his marriage to Mary Louise, he is again very ill. Um, you know, the, the evidence isn't as clear as the story would like it to be. But, you know, it, it's he, he himself in some of his private correspondence, and especially when he's discussing the war with Russia, 
is saying, look, you know, I have got to get things sorted out while I can still get in the saddle, while I'm still well enough. I've got to secure my son's future. This is where you get the cautious bit of him. It doesn't come out as cautious. It come, it, he winds up doing things that, that will destroy him, but it comes out of caution. You know, I'm not well. I have a baby son. This is going to be a long regency because I'm not going to live forever. And I have to leave him as secure an inheritance as I can. He just doesn't know how to do it. And from there starts the downward spiral. Of course, 1801 is when he dies. So you know, that sort of sets a natural end to it. So with the benefit of a hindsight, you, you're able to kind of go back and say, hey, this is when... Um, you know, this is when you see it, 1811, he dies in 1821. When did he realize it was over? Um, <laughs> there's never a straight line with Napoleon. <laughs> there, there's a, I think 1811 is the moment when he realizes that on the one hand, I have an heir and I've you know, come close to securing the future, but I've got to secure his future. You know, I, I've got to make sure I leave him something secure, a secure Europe, a secure empire. So I've got to take steps to do that. It takes the wrong ones. Um, but the end, um, I think sometimes you have to believe what he writes when he's under pressure. And he's one of these guys who's always looking on the positive side. There's got to be something we can do here. You know, however reckless and crazy, you know, okay, let, let's try it. Um, we're up against it. We can still try this. It's, you know, until all the avenues are exhausted. Even when they get him to abdicate in 1814, um, a few hours later, he's sort of saying, well, just a minute, I've changed my mind here. I've changed my mind. And they said, no, you can't change your mind. You know, uh, I mean, as soon as he gets to Elba, he's thinking about returning. Um. I think he, in some ways he knows it's over, but if he sits on Elba, he, he, he honestly does believe they'll, they'll, they'll welch on the deal and they'll send me to St. Helena anyway. You know, I may as well try. I think when he realizes, when he, I'm a professional historian, you know, so I have to go by the facts. I think that the moment he realizes he's actually had it comes right at the end in 1815 he's abdicated for the second time he's left Paris under a basically as a, a prisoner to go to the coast the west in the west of France to get a ship now he winds up in a small port in the west of France his brother Joseph says look I've got an American ship lined up a little bit further south and I've got us a couple of um, couple of passports from the French government. Um, in it, we've got our Italian names on them, but we've got them. And before Napoleon goes to the port where the British are, he knows where the British are. He could go with Joseph to that ship and get to America. For some reason, he says to Joseph, you go on ahead. I'll catch you up. Joseph goes, gets to America. He has jolly good, good life and career in America. 
Napoleon doesn't follow him. He turns himself over to the British. I think that's the, I think that's the only moment when you can say for certain he knows it's over. You know, I am giving up now. I'm going to hope I'm going to hope for the best. I'm going to let my brother go free because if I go with him, maybe we won't get it. He won't get away. You know, I'm going to turn myself in. So in this era. A just generally speaking, how well was Napoleon known throughout the, the Western world? But then the, the the more practical question is, would it be possible for someone like him to go somewhere in America, for instance, and live a normal life without being seen because people didn't have as many pictures and stuff around? Or was his face so popular that everyone could have, or most anyone, could have spotted him? Oh, yeah, he's the best known person in the whole of the Western world, North and South America, as well as Europe. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, his his image is everywhere. He's made sure of that himself. Mm. You know, everybody knows what Napoleon looks like. He can disguise himself incognito very well, actually. There are times he and Joseph travel around as a couple of olive oil salesmen. You know, there's all the shades. There's all the shades of the Godfather in Napoleon somewhere. You know, <laughs> my cover is I'm an olive oil salesman. Well, that's what I am, and he can get away with it. But um, but generally speaking, it it would be impossible, and he wouldn't want it like that anyway. You know, he he wouldn't want that. He would want to be a celebrity. Um, everybody would know who he was. Joseph never hid who he was when he was in America. His brother Lucien went to America too. They never hid who they were. They couldn't. Um, so, you know, he'd, he would always have um, a public life. When he was on Elba, tour boats used to come and visit him. Tour boats full of Brit- British tourists, French tourists, German tourists. And he would, he would invite them in. He would invite them up to his residence on Elba and say, come on, sit down, everybody. I'll tell you about the Battle of Austerlitz. You know, um, there'd be no question of, of that. What would happen would be the authorities would have to keep an eye on him. You know, he's not stupid. He knows that. Um, but he wouldn't have wanted to, to, to be a private person. He couldn't be. He couldn't. You know, he, his image was everywhere. When he... Even when he's on a, a British ship, the, the left one, and they're, they're taking him to St. Helena, they, they put in on the south coast of England in a couple of ports in the south coast for a few days. You know, while he's trying to negotiate with the British government, they're trying to work out what, how exactly they're going to get him to St. Helena. People are gathering at the quayside to have a look at him. A couple of people drown trying to swim out to him. And he plays up to it. You every night at five o'clock, he comes out onto the deck. Hi, everybody. I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. Waves his cock hat around. Um, so yeah, I don't think there'd be any question of lying low. So in 1815, he sends him on his way. He walks into a pub, grabs a beer, and he's waiting to turn himself in. And you sat down with him. And you said, hey, these are the things that the mistakes that you made. Would he would he at that point be able to recognize the mistakes that he made? And what were those what would those mistakes be? 
Um, he well, a lot of this comes out in his in his dictated memoirs. You know what he thought his mistakes were. Now a lot of those things are angry and self-justifying, um, and yet occasionally very clear-headed. Um, if you're asking his point of view or my point of view, you're no, no. If you were able to sit down with him, knowing what you know about his life career, and you said, "Hey, I think these are the mistakes that you made." Would he? Would you think he would agree with your assessment based upon what you know of what he said? And what do you think the problems are? The first thing he would say to me was, well, I have heard that before. Um, <laughs> he, he did not like yes men. And one of the most interesting things about, say, the buildup to the Russian campaign in 1812 is some of the guys he trusts most in the world. One of them was his sometime minister to Russia, and his sometime foreign minister, a uh, French aristocrat called Colincourt. And Colincourt sits and comes back from Russia uh, because he wants to leave his post in St. Petersburg. And he and Napoleon have it out. Um, you know, he loses his temper with Napoleon. Napoleon doesn't lose his temper with him. And Colincourt thinks, I'm going to be sacked. And Napoleon says, No, I want you on a special envoy. No, I, you know, I, I need your opinion. But, you always, but I mean, I take your point. I take I take your point that that um, we're biting an awful lot going into Russia. I take your point that this is going to be difficult. But I, my point of view, you don't understand. Again, you know, I have got to secure my son's throne. The only way I can do that is to take out the only army that's left who can defeat me. And that's Russians, the Russians, and I've got to get them. I'll try not to make the mistakes that everybody else has made when they've been made in Russia. I think he overcompensates. That's his problem. He overcompensates. Um, there's a certain amount of overconfidence there on the military side. Great deal. Um, and again, Cambesseres, who's the guy who probably trusts most of the whole world, who's his... Um, Who's his, his arch chancellor? His you know his great legal expert. He's been with them right from the start. Says to him, "Look, you've gone away for too long and too far." Because Cambersois is always the guy left in charge in Paris. So he's virtually his viceroy. You're going away too long and too far. This is too big a risk. You know, I, I really I have to tell you from an internal French point of view, this isn't a good idea. You've been away so long so far. Anything could happen. We know there could be a coup against you. We know there could. Napoleon says, yes, I understand your point of view, but it's, I've read this up. It's a risk I have to take. I don't think he would have admitted Russia was a failure or was, was a, a doomed enterprise, I should say. He always blamed the weather. And that is something that's true and isn't true, but it shows you that we still think that about 1812, unless you study it very closely, like the kind of nerd I am, I've studied it very closely, and I know that's not true. But most people, reasonably you know, enough, do think it's true. He said so. And he knew it wasn't true. It was, in many ways, a badly bungled campaign. Um, that was a huge mistake because he loses a massive amount of men. 
many of them good troops, but the core of the army is still intact. He loses his cavalry and he can never replace the cavalry. Never. And the Russians can, it's very like America at the same time. Alexander can go onto the steps and round up herds of Russian Mustangs and just mount his army and carry on like nothing's happened. Um, Napoleon can't do that. He finds men harder and harder to replace. Alexander has a massive surf population that he can only mobilize slowly. And that saves him. You know what I mean? He's, he can't get all his men in the field at one go, so he can't lose them all at one go. He can keep coming in waves. And he picks up the Prussians and then the Austrians along the way. Um, I think his biggest mistake was Russia. Is, but he can recover from that. They're still afraid of him right into 1813. Probably the thing that did for him was the thing he couldn't control. And that was the Allies coming together. Um, once, it, once the Russians have liberated themselves without any help from anybody, the British suddenly decide they're worth investing in. And the British release almost unlimited amounts of money to back the Russians and the Prussians and eventually the Austrians against Napoleon. They'll, they'll bankroll them up to the hilt. And what you've got is Napoleon's nightmare come true because he hasn't been able to knock out the British, only contain them. And he's let the Russians win. He's got two things together. He's got Russian manpower, Prussian, three things, Prussian military know-how and English money. And from then on, although he can still win victories, it's now not dependent on him knocking them out. It's dependent on them fouling up. And that doesn't happen. Would you say that Napoleon, by and large, was a man of his time? In other words, is he just the best, for lack of a better term, of this era? Or was he unique in how he viewed um, what he was doing relative to other rulers of this period? Um, I would say that from that point of view of what he was doing as a ruler, he was very much a man of his time. Um, and that's one of his great strengths, I think. He's very much a man of the Enlightenment, highly educated, very well read, you know, in the contemporary, in contemporary literature, but also, you know, in the Philosoph, um, in enlightened culture, not just in France. I mean, he could read, obviously he read, read Italian. It was really his first language. Um, Spanish wasn't a problem for him. He could read German. He could read English. Um, he can absorb all these things. Um, the reforms he was trying to push through, um, you can view them as a good thing or a bad thing, but they'd all been in the air for a long time. Um, Various rulers, Frederick the Great to a certain extent, Joseph II, above all, the Habsburg Emperor, um, who was um, Mary Louise's uncle. Um, these guys, had, uh, Charles III in Spain, these guys had been carrying out reforms or trying to, very similar to Napoleon's generation before. And it's interesting that, say, when Napoleon goes into territory, that, um, you know, Joseph had controlled 
Um, he almost says, find me the guys who work for Joseph II. And by and large, they'll come over to his side. A lot of the small German states, places like Bavaria, Wurttemberg, Baden, um, uh, Nassau, that were, um, they were, a lot of the, the ministers in those states, the, the, the leading ministers, were guys who'd worked for Joseph II. And then when Joseph died, went home and took his reforming ideas with them. They were his closest allies. You know, he's pushing open doors. Even in Spain, the guys who work for Charles III will not work with the Spanish resistance. They work for Napoleon. The whole of Joseph's ministry in Spain is composed of Spaniards. You know, that, that there are plenty of people out there on his wavelength. You know, or he, rather he's on theirs. There's a whole generation of Frenchmen, even those who may oppose him politically, who agree with his reforms, hence why they endure. You know, he's, he's very much of his times. He didn't, and he never claimed to be anything else. What about from a military standpoint? Was he a genius, had better resources, combination of both? He certainly, he certainly had very good resources, especially because you got to remember uh, when the empire really is at its height, when he's at his most powerful, between about 1805 and about 1809, 1808, he doesn't control just France. He controls the resources of northern and central Italy, above all of Western Germany and the Low Countries. You know, he's tapped into the most vibrant parts, populous, wealthiest parts of Europe. And that can fuel the war machine, not just with men, but with material, with taxation. Um, he is certainly, I think, a great battlefield commander most of the time. As time goes on, you can see him making crucial mistakes, as he does um, a bit in 1807 against the Russians, um, certainly in 1812, um, you know, latterly maybe in 1813, maybe at Leipzig when his luck's running out. But he's a great battlefield commander. He has his great blind spots. Um, you know, certain nationalities, certain troops just aren't any good. The British aren't any good. British can't fight. You know, ghastly misunderstanding, you know, ghastly miscalculation. Um, they, they, they never thinks that they'll somehow improve. Um, he knows nothing about naval warfare. You know, he, he, he botches completely any attempts to invade England, not just because he was up against defences he couldn't penetrate, but because he had no idea what navies were like. You know, he has these enormous blind spots, but there's one thing you, you, you can't fault him for. He was a great man manager and a great motivator. When he gathers, when he's going to invade England, he thinks he's going to invade England, between 1803 and 1805, 1804, he gathers that period, almost two years, gathers together a huge army, you know, knocking on 200,000 men in the channel camps in northeastern France and Belgium. Most of these guys are raw conscripts, reluctant conscripts who have to be dragged out of their beds by the, by the gendarmerie. They do. They've maybe been fighting them a week before. These young guys pulled away from home, never been away from home before, um, this is a recipe for disaster. 
you know, all these, apart from the fact that they may be ideologically opposed to them, these are very young, very bored men in a very miserable part of France. Yeah. And he turns them into a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, his, his training program is, you know, amazing. This is going to be an amphibious invasion. The whole army has to learn how to swim. Can you imagine how fit those guys were? Daily drill, 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 more drill. When you get sick of drill, amateur theatricals. You know, and then more drill. And then you can go into town and wreck the place. Setting one unit against another just to keep them scrapping. But, I mean, even the horse artillery learns to swim. The cavalry learn to swim. You know, and they sit there. The Austrians and Russians are saying, oh, look, it's going to take them weeks to get down here. It's going to take him a couple of months before he gets to the Danube. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah? The whole army made it in under a month and the Imperial Guard were there in a fortnight. You know, and the Austrian commander, Mack, is just staring out from his, you know, encampment at Ullman going, where did they come from? <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's desperately shouting back to Vienna, you know that army that said wouldn't be here? Well, it's here and it's all coming towards me. And, he, you know, that's exactly what happened. I mean, that and that was him and his ability to choose good commanders when he has them. He has his A team and he works that out in the channel. And as long as that A team is functioning, they never let him down. You know, that's to me, that's his real genius. So, you know, he, oh, sorry, I was, I was gonna say, you, you mentioned he has these trusted advisors, and then you also mentioned he has these glaring holes. Was it that his advisors weren't good at these areas as well, as well, or did they try to help him out with the Navy stuff and he just didn't listen? Why couldn't he overcome these blind spots? Yeah, when it comes to the Navy, he just plain won't listen. There is a reason for it. The French Navy, this is, this is very different from, from uh, Britain or America at the same time. The army has been pretty radicalized by the French Revolution. And even a lot of the people with aristocratic backgrounds in the army sided with the revolution because the, the French army lost all its wars in the 18th century. They were fed up with support the regime that, you know, they're a bunch of losers. The French Navy was a very elite force. And most of those officers were aristocrats, highly trained. And the Navy depended on the empire, the French empire, you know, in places like Haiti and you know, the, the, the um, Guadalupe, Martinique and stuff that were lost. And they felt lost because of the revolution. And in Napoleon's mind, the Navy is always tainted with royalism. You can't trust them. They're not really with us. They're not with me. They weren't with the revolution. They're royalists. You can't trust them. And there's something about a certain kind of aristocrat ingrained in Napoleon. He thinks he's incompetent. And that actually comes out in a lot of his private correspondence, his private course, in his private conversations with Colin Crow, which Colin Crow recorded. Well, he didn't really wrote them down, you know, but the guy may as well have had a mic attached to him. And you know, he, it's amazing. And, and, and in Napoleon's memoirs, you know, so-and-so, I knew so-and-so, I, I should have known so-and-so couldn't handle it. He's a nobleman. He's stupid. You know, there are these blind spots and under pressure they can come out. And I say the, the British, no, the, the, the British can't fight. British are bad soldiers. 
you know, you, this is something that comes out of the correspondence and the Spanish too. You know, when, when the French, the one and only time the French are defeated in open battle in Spain by the Spanish, the poor commander really gets into the neck. It's one of the few times I've really seen Napoleon get a bit vicious with somebody, a commander. You know, you should not lose to the Spanish. You don't lose to Spain. If you've been beaten by the Austrians, that's all right. The Austrians are good soldiers. They're much underrated. Russians are the best soldiers in the world apart from us. Everybody knows about Prussia. But you do not lose to the Spanish. You do not lose to the British. You, you don't. You know, and people can tell him. But there is a cutoff point there. So from 1815 to 1821, of his close circle people he believed to be his allies, confidants, advisors, etc. Was he surprised to see many defect? Was he encouraged that people stood beside him? What happened to those close by him as things get worse? One of the major character traits of Napoleon is a hatred of ingratitude. He can, he's, this, I, to me, this is a key that really opens up a lot about the guy. If someone has a reason for changing sides, he will understand. You know, he, he's not a vindictive man, really. He's not a vengeful, vindictive person. Um, it's not in his character. But for someone to express complete ingratitude, not just to change sides because they think it's for the best reasons, but to badmouth them. You know, this is the kind of thing you'll throw at them. I made you everything you are. I gave you a break. This explains a lot of the hatred towards his family, which, again, never becomes vicious. I mean, he would never do anything horrible to them. He would never harm them. But the real sense of rage he feels towards his siblings. You know, I, this was a family project. I did everything I could for you, and this is what you do. You let me down. When people betray him and then want to come back into the fold, as a rule, he welcomes them back. He's glad to have them. And there is a kind of, and I told you, so I told you you wouldn't like working for the Bourbons. I told you you wouldn't like working for the king. He's not up to much. But there are one or two people who want to come back, and they're politely sidelined. Because in 1814, when they changed sides, they went too far. There are some things in the Hundred Days, I think, that genuinely break his heart. Um, Eugene, his stepson, who he would really have wanted for an heir, if he thought that both the generals and, and his brothers would have had him, but they wouldn't. He is married to the daughter of the King of Bavaria. And Eugene in 1814 was one of the loyalest of the loyal. But in 1815, he says, this is daft. You know, this is, this is wacko. I'm having nothing to do with it. And I think that hurts him. Because his sister Hortense does side with Napoleon and spends years in poverty and exile because of it. Um, there are certain... He, he can be incredibly magnanimous. Um... But there are certain people, like Marshal Marmont, who Napoleon really did regard as a good guy and a protege, 
1814 is when Marmont takes his army corps over to the Allies. That's when Napoleon knows the game's up and has to abdicate. And he never forgives it. He, said, he says one thing that rings in my mind. He said it at the time in his correspondence. He said it later in his memoirs to Las Cass, history will reserve a very certain place for that guy. Mm. Uh, you know, and there is a certain level of betrayal and ingratitude that embitters him. And you can see it growing. I did all this for you. You know, and this is how you treat me. But when it's when he can see the reason somebody did it and they explain it to him, he can live with that and he can forgive. What killed Napoleon? Well, we don't really have the medical evidence. I mean, it wasn't arsenic in the wallpaper. <laughs> Listen, oh. I had to ask, right? No, you did. All wallpaper has arsenic in it. It still does. <laughs> I think what look, there was a lot wrong with the guy physically. Mm. Um, you know, this we know. One of the interesting things, this is just by, uh, by the way, that his private surgeons, his pri- two private doctors, they would not write memoirs. Mm. The people who were very closest to Napoleon, almost none of them wrote memoirs. Such was their loyalty to the guy. But anyway, so, you know, there's a lot we, we just have to pick up from things. Um, but we know he was very ill for a long time because he said, you know, by 1811, he's saying so openly, you know, I ain't got long. Um, so he, he, he's a sick man when he goes to St. Helena. Um, there is something that sounds like, uh, I've asked a lot of my medical friends about it. One of my drinking buddies in the pub in the village I live in is a very, very distinguished surgeon. And he says it sounds like a form of hereditary stomach cancer that runs right through the Bonapartes. Similar symptoms killed all his sisters. His brothers all lived to a decent age. His sisters died of symptoms very similar to him, something to do with probably some kind of stomach cancer. Um, His uncle died of something like it. His father died of something like it. His great uncle died of something like it. They think he's already got something badly wrong with him that and probably other stuff as well stress if nothing else and he gets there but to me the thing that actually did for him that made all these things worse was originally in saint helena he's living down on the coast in the main port which is a reasonably healthy climate and then the british move him to a place called longwood house which is up in the hills in the most unhealthy part of the island it's dank it's cold, it's damp. You know, it would it would do for anybody who, who wasn't fully robust in health. And whatever the process was, that must have speeded it up. What was the reaction when he died? Um, a mixture, as you'd expect. Um, and certainly in in a lot, a lot of circles, and uh, you know the, the the British, the Austrian, the Russian establishments, there was a sigh of relief, um, and in the, among French royalists, Chateaubriand, his sort of great alter ego, a frenemy, you might say, says, "Well, we'll hear no more of the famous delinquent now." Um, but there's also a a great amount of fear that goes through that look. 
fake news starts to spread. No, he's not really dead. He escaped to America. You know, South America, maybe, you know. But there's also the feeling that this guy is now going to become a martyr. Um, you know, because the former soldiers, almost to a man, all the Napoleonic veterans, and not just in France, in parts of Germany, especially Germany, parts of Italy, Belgium, these guys have their reunions. You know, these guys keep the light alive. Um, the memoirs are coming out you know, from St. Helena. They're bestsellers, although they're illegal. They're circulating. And, um, you, know, the, the, you know, this could rise from the dead. Um, his son, who's now a virtual prisoner of the Austrians in a gilded cage, it must be said, keeping a very close watch on him. You know, and, and right through the, the 1820s, there are stirrings like this because there are revolutions, failed abortive revolutions in Italy. There's one in Naples, there's one in Piedmont. There's a big one in Spain that nearly works. And there's always a tinge in there of nostalgia for him because they were initiated by young army officers who looked to him. He's become a kind of an icon to a lot of the South American revolutionaries. A lot of the generals leading it. You know, Santa Ana, who you know from the Alamo, styles himself on the Napoleon of the New World. You know, and then sort of this, you know, this could happen again. Um, you know, so there's a, yeah, there's a lot of ferment under the, you know, under, uh, you know, under the covers. There's, there's a lot of unease because it rekindles something. And again, the rumors start to fly. That's when it starts to fly. Like you had to ask, well, what killed him? This is natural. Mm-hmm. Must have killed him. Must have been, you know, must have been poisoned. He must have been assassinated. No, maybe he's not dead. You know, maybe, 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 you know, if it was nowadays, they'd say, well, maybe he was kidnapped by aliens. <laughs> no, he was an alien. <laughs> still out there. <laughs> he's still out there. He's still out there. Him and Elvis are hanging out. <laughs> what is the biggest misconception that people like me, the non-historians, the average guy on the average guy on the street, have about Napoleon? That he was like Hitler. Mm. You're asking me for one. Okay, I get you can do two or three if you want, but <laughs> that, that would be the first one I would jump on because that's the one we all hate. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. I mean, there, I know there are geopolitical things that make them, you know, but but really, he he his regime wasn't like that. He wasn't like that. Uh, I think the other thing that's a big misconception was he was a master of propaganda. Well, yeah, he's everywhere. But not all that many people buy it. The ordinary French people don't buy it. He was not popular with ordinary French people. The peasantry who got conscripted, who got taxed, who got their religion mocked, because he's pretty anti-clerical, you know. Um, There's a big misconception. You know, he doesn't deal with the Pope. It lasts about five minutes. They, They can't get on. Um, there was Nietzsche who said it best, the lion, the, the, the eagle of empire cannot lie down with the Lamb of God. Um, you know, and so the ordinary French people, the peasantry out there, what they know about Napoleon and his regime is conscription. They call it the blood tax. He was never popular. When the Allies invade in 1814, there are very few popularizings to support him. You know, there's a big misconception about him. Um, 
I think the other misconception is that the whole thing was a mafia plot for a family to take over the world. Um, that's one that gets my goat because in that period of time, everybody trusted their family. You know, I mean, like nobody would ever accuse George Washington of corruption, but all his relatives went into government when he became president because he could trust them. It's a natural thing. What would have been unnatural if Napoleon hadn't made his brothers kings? What is unnatural about him in some ways is that when they screw up, he fires them. He fires Louis as king of Holland. He sacks them. You know, he, he, he's, he's about ready to fire Jerome from Westphalia when he it doesn't matter because Westphalia is invaded anyway. You know, he's, he's about, he, he, and he does basically sack Joseph from Spain. You know, he's ruthless with his family in a way that I don't think most people at the time would be. Families stick together in that period. You know, and he's in that sense no different from anybody else. I think those are the big misconceptions about him that, that come straight to mind. If you could sit down with Napoleon and he's going to answer honestly, what's this, the one question? You get one question with him. He's going to answer honestly. What would it be? One. Um, how did you think you were ever going to turn Austria and Russia into loyal allies and partners? How did you think you were going to do that? I think that's what I'd ask him. On one level. I think on another, I would ask him, why were, why were you so hard on your younger brothers? They were doing their best on a personal level. Okay. We're, we're going to link to the book there's a bunch of books on Napoleon you have, but we're going to link to the current one, Napoleon, the, the Decline and Fall of an Empire, 1811 through 1821. Obviously, I think it's the third in a series. Is that correct? Third of a trilogy. Yep, third, third of the trilogy. So we'll go ahead and link to the other two in the trilogy as well. It's a short read. It's only 600, uh, 760 pages. So it's a slight Friday night knock it out um, for those who like to read. Um, obviously, it's it's always great talking to historians who love the topic they write about. And it's quite clear that you're, you're passionate about Napoleon. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Is there anywhere else you want us to send people to besides the books? Uh, that I've written. Uh, yes. Or written by other people. No, no, no. Uh, do you have a website, uh, social media, anything else that you're doing that you want us to push I'm people afraid, to? Afraid I don't, I don't have a website or, or social media. So but, just uh, buy the books and consume them. Yeah. Just buy the book. It's a trilogy read from beginning to end and along somewhere on the beach or something like that. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> All <right>. good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you very much for asking me. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.